May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Well, we all made it. We survived Christmas. The truth is, of course, that we've just begun Christmas. And no, I don't mean that commercial I saw that actually said, get ready for Christmas 2015. I mean that we're in the fourth day of the Christmas season. Now, there are only 12 days in the Christmas season, 12 days that we celebrate between the birth of Christ and the arrival of the Magi. Perhaps you've heard that song about it. The song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, first appeared in Tudor, England. Tudor, England, if you'll recall, passed back and forth between Catholic and Anglican monarchs. Heck, it passed back and forth between a Catholic and an Anglican monarch and Henry VIII himself. But when his daughter Mary took the throne, she reverted the whole country back to Catholicism. And when her brother and later her half-sister took the throne, the country was reverted back to Anglicanism. And in this back-and-forth period, the 12 days of Christmas appeared. Rumor has it that the 12 days of Christmas was created as a sort of coded message for young Catholics growing up in rampant Protestant England. By recounting the words of the song, they would recount the pillars of their true Catholic faith. Pretty sneaky. As it turns out, that's not true. The symbolism of each verse in the song applies to all Christians, Protestant or Catholic, young or old, fans of poultry or lords a-leaping. And the song itself is basically a remake of a song that showed up 150 years earlier, a song that was clear about what each number for each day in the Christmas season would bring to mind. But like any good remake of a classic, the Tudor version slaps on some shiny new lyrics to jazz things up for a new audience. Plus, this remake had a twist. Could the listener figure out the coded messages? I know you're wrapped up in suspense or trying to rack your brain for what each of the 12 days stood for, so I will let you in on today. The fourth day of Christmas, on which my true love gave to me four calling birds. The four calling birds speak to the four evangelists who wrote the four gospels. And today in song is remembered the way that these stories, these gospels, call out to us. The gospels, literally the word gospel, means the good news. And the gospels share the good news of Jesus Christ. Throughout time, these writings of Holy Scripture call out the message to us and call us towards a greater understanding and love of God, the God we come to know most fully in Jesus Christ. Now, as we all know, the good news of Jesus Christ, the knowledge that God in infinite mercy and unfolding of love became incarnate, that God came to us as a small child, inspiring love and tenderness, that Christ lived and died for us and to redeem us from sin. This good news of love and mercy and redemption and joy finds a place to be kindled in our hearts and from the very center of our being can pour out into the world. The joy of God's infinite love 
And the presence of Christ in this world came to shatter our understanding of who we are and who we are called to be. But it's not always easy. It's not always constant. This pure Christmas time feeling of light and wonder and hope and joy. If you can get past the idea that there is a creator of the universe that not only gives of itself to create anything and everything, if you can get past the idea that that same being knows every hair on your head and thought of your heart, if you can get past the idea that that same being humbled itself to walk and talk and sneeze among us, and you are filled with light and joy and hope and wonder, you may find yourself drawing up short at the idea that all of this happened simply and perfectly because God's love for us knows no bounds. The good news, the gospel of Christ that calls out to us to enkindle in our hearts a new and radiant light, the incarnate light of the living word of God. As we sing during the hymn Silent Night, Son of God, Love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. That kindling light is the same light that poured over the earth at the beginning of creation. It's the same light that shone on the faces of outcasts and sinners to reveal them as beloved children of God. It's the same light that shines in the valleys of the shadows of death. It is Christ the Lord. All of this, all of this, and yet one of our greatest struggles, the place where we start to hesitate, is that we have to do something in order to earn this ability to bask in the radiance of God's light. We get caught up in the idea that when God reaches out to us, We need to do something to prompt that, as if God's love is reactionary, instead of God's love being propelling and life-giving and ready to swallow us up whole. Instead of looking at the brightness of God, at the dazzling illumination of love that is Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we inadvertently begin to put ourselves in the shade. This is natural and human and something we occasionally need to be shaken out of. This idea that there is something more we could be doing to earn our place in God's life. We've heard the gospel. We know the good news. And yet we still look for ways to say to ourselves or to one another, Oh no, you can't have all of that. You need to do X, Y, and Z to earn that. You need to look this way, sound this way, feel this way in order to earn God's presence in your life. And when that starts to happen, we can become intimidated. We can withdraw. We can be broken down. We can find ourselves enslaved to ideas or practices or attitudes that we entered into for good intentions that we entered into because we thought they would draw us closer to the light of God, when the reality is that they slowly leave us shackled in darkness. 
This is what's happened to the Christian community in Galatia. Galatians is one of my favorite letters because Paul just goes nuts on the whole church. He's so frustrated with what's happening in this community that his language becomes coarse. His grammar gets all nutty, like when someone with a really thick accent that only comes out when they get angry. And you can almost see him pulling his hair out. You foolish Galatians, Paul writes over and over. And at the end of the letter, there's a part where he says, see how big these letters are? Can't you tell that it's my own writing? That's how you know it's me and not just some scribe. Paul takes this personally. I like Galatians precisely because Paul is so fervent about calling the church out from this darkness that they've entered into with the best of intentions, calling them back into the light of Christ. The church in Galatia was made up of new Christians who came from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. So Paul went to share the gospel of Jesus, and the church was built. But then he left, and in his absence, some other teachers came along. And what these teachers began to tell the Galatians was that even though they heard the gospel and believed in it, it wasn't enough. They said that in order to receive the promises of God, in order to receive fully this new covenant in Christ, Jesus alone wasn't enough. And that all Christians had to follow the law, the 800-some-odd prescriptions that God handed down to Israel back in the desert. So what the teachers advocated was actually backtracking from this freedom of redemption in Christ to this prescriptive type of earning God's forgiveness that the law taught. Paul is not at all happy when he hears about this. We used to have a disciplinarian in the law, he says, but then faith came. Faith is always a gift of God. And it's never something that can be produced or earned by people. One theologian puts it beautifully that faith is a sort of divine persuasion, something we participate in but can't create by ourselves. But faith is a gift that we can grasp and nurture and grow in. Faith is a calling out to us by God. And as Paul writes, when that faith appears... We are set free. Jesus came to give us that very freedom, to redeem us through grace and love and the sacrifice of his own life. The gift of faith calls us out from darkness into light. And in that light, we are made children. Not servants, not acquaintances, not even good friends. We're made children through God. Paul writes about all of this happening in the fullness of time. And what that means is that there comes a need for an ending so that something else can begin. The ending of our own pretensions and pretendings to grace become incarnate in Christ, and he gives us new life. Through Christ, we are called out of who we are and who we think we are supposed to be, into being beloved children of God. We're kindled by the buoyant light of grace and sustained by the Holy Spirit. This Christmas season, it is my hope that each of us acknowledges the fullness of time in our lives and the places in our hearts and minds and attitudes where something must end 
in order for us to give greater room to the light of God. It's my hope that we hear Jesus calling us into new life and that we learn to listen and discern and kindle the movements of the Holy Spirit. Who knows how brightly the light of that enkindled incarnate word of God can shine in our hearts and in our lives. Tomorrow, my true love will give to me five golden rings. A ring for each of our senses. Symbols of the full human experience. An experience that God shares with us and for us. And these 12 days, we remember the most precious gift of God. A light incarnate. A child who would grow to make us all children. In this season, may we recognize our freedom from darkness and step into the radiance of God's holy light. Amen.